This is the Sydney Review of Books podcast. I'm the SRB editor, Katrina Menzies-Pike. Welcome to our podcast about Australian books and writers. I've long been interested in how the places we live shape how we write. The SRB has been publishing essays on writing and place for some time, and I invited poet Eileen Chong to take up this theme. Eileen lives in Sydney, so I figured she'd write an essay about Sydney. Instead, Eileen has written an essay with roots in three places. Singapore, where she was born, Sydney, where she now lives, and Scotland, the country her husband is from. This is Climbing the Hill by Eileen Chong. There is a photograph of me taken on a hillside in Scotland. Loch Lomond is in the background, and the dramatic outline of the Trussocks rise above and around the water. The loch is beautiful in the way a landscape painting is beautiful, although the clouds above it are ominously dark. I was visiting Scotland for the first time with my husband, C, who was born in Dunfermline, in Fife. It was a fine day, and C suggested that we go for a walk. We drove to the village of Lass, then walked past a beach on the shores of Loch Lomond. C looked at his map, then led us across a bridge to a sign that said Ben Du, 642 metres, hill path. We fumbled the gate open, stepped into the field, and pulled the gate shut behind us. Twenty minutes later, we were a quarter of the way up the hill. The loch was behind us, and every time I turned around, the view would change, and each time was breathtakingly beautiful. I would turn to face the path again, struggling to catch up to see. By now, I had stripped off my overcoat because I was sweating so much. I was thirsty, having drained the contents of my small water bottle long ago. I clutched a handkerchief which I would soon use to cover my face as I stopped mid-climb and sobbed. Two months prior to our trip, I had undergone yet another operation in a long series of surgeries to address a chronic health issue. And here I was, climbing a hill in Scotland, my unwell body clearly unprepared for the physical demands of this activity. You said it was a walk, I cried. C was baffled by my distress. This is a walk, he said. By the time we were halfway at Ben Du, I had given up. I don't think I can do this, I said, quietly. Okay, C replied, gently. We made the descent together and returned to the car. As if on cue... The sky opened and down came the rain.
Later, I would read that Ben, as in Ben Lomond or Ben Nevis, is the anglicisation of the Gaelic Ben, peak or mountain. In Scotland, mountains over 3,000 feet or about 915 metres are known as Munros, named for Sir Hugh Munro. While Bendu, standing at 642 metres or 2,106 feet, is not on Munro, that day, for me, it had been insurmountable. I'm not a mountain climber, I reminded C. It was only a hill, he responded. I was born in and grew up in Singapore, a city-island state, which, at around 720 square kilometres, is about two-thirds the size of New York City. The tallest point in Singapore is Bukit Timah Hill, which, at 163.63 metres tall, or 537 feet, is only a quarter of the height of Ben Du. I've always been a city girl. One of my earliest memories is that of traffic noise coming through a narrow strip of louvered windows in the bedroom I shared with my parents. Our bedroom was one of several within a terraced shop house that we shared with over 50 members of our extended family. Singapore can be a crowded place. I moved out of my parents' apartment at the age of 21 into my own home. It was a small flat, one of hundreds in a block of public housing. 82% of Singapore's population live in such flats. Living in such close, dense quarters, noise from your neighbours and your surrounds was a given. When I was in my honours year at university and working on my thesis, I found that I could only write in the early hours of the morning, when there was relative silence. At 3am, I would hear my downstairs neighbours in their bathroom. They would flush the toilet, clear their throats, and sluice water onto the tiles. Perhaps they were shift workers. That would be my cue to go to bed. I have lived away from Singapore for 12 years now. When I return for a visit, I see it with different eyes. I now see what visitors meant when they said that Singapore resembled a large building site. Everywhere on the island, there is demolition and construction. It appears to be constant. As a result of extensive land reclamation, there are now entire towns that did not exist before. Singapore sometimes seems like a single, gargantuan shopping mall. I did not always see this when I lived there. I was not a writer when I lived in Singapore. I do not know if I would have become a writer if I had stayed. I do not know if I would still be a writer if I returned. I'd moved to Australia for love. I never did have the children I thought I would have. A few years into my marriage, I was writing poetry and not much else. I did most of my writing at my desk in the hallway 
because there was no space for a room of my own. Eventually, love ran its course and I moved out. I kept writing even though I didn't think I could. There is a writing nook in my new apartment. It is not a large space, but it contains bookshelves, a desk, a chest of drawers, and a small couch. There is room to read, to think, and to write. From my study, I can see a small patch of sky. The view is partially obscured by the surrounding buildings, but I know that under that sky is the bay with yachts in the water, dogs in the park, and cormorants wheeling overhead. Although I cannot see any of that from here. I suffer from a lot of anxiety when I am away from home. I worry that if I go away, it or I will somehow disappear. I write best from home, with my cats close by, and with my domestic routines intact and predictable. I read and read, and I tell myself I can learn everything I need to know from within the pages of a book. The rain had arrived, drumming on the car roof and pouring down the windshield. Ben Du, abandoned, we decided to drive into Glasgow. I wanted to visit the Gallery of Modern Art. There was an exhibition on the theme of the domestic spread across several rooms. I spent a long time looking at three palm-sized, photorealistic oil paintings by a local artist named Lois Green. The first, a pile of unwashed dishes in a sink. The second, half an unmade bed, doubled in the mirrored door of an open wardrobe. The third, a window, its shade drawn up, reflecting the detritus of the same bedroom. The Land Reform Scotland Act 2003 provides for reasonable rights of access over land and inland water throughout Scotland, also known as Freedom to Roam. The Scottish Outdoor Access Code details how you can behave responsibly while exercising your access rights. I cannot believe such a law exists. C wanted to see standing stones on the Isle of Mull. We found a stone circle on the GPS and drove from the town of Tobermory in its general direction. In the village of Lochbui, we came upon a white gate. On it was a small hand-painted sign. Follow the white stones to the stone circle. The trail cut across several fields. Each time we opened a gate and went through it, we shut it carefully behind us. A herd of wild deer startled and scattered when we approached. We arrived at the stone circle without ceremony. It was a small circle at the bottom of a valley set into boggy ground. Somewhere, a bird was singing. There was no one else around. We walked around the stones, 
touching them gently, rough rock, velvet moss. I wondered about ley lines. We stood in the centre of the circle, faced each other and held hands. I wondered how many others throughout the centuries had done the same in this very spot. The sun shone upon our faces and the air was sweet with the scent of wildflowers. Around the field, the hills of Benbui rose up like a cupped palm. For the most part, we were silent, each alone with our own thoughts. The old hunting lodge at Ig was a good place to stay on the Isle of Lewis, because we were keen on visiting the Calanay Standing Stones and the Black House Museum at Arnold in the north of the island. What I didn't expect to find at Ig, a pristine beach dotted with rocks. C and I crossed the bank and walked on the fine white sand. We were freezing, despite the fact that we were wearing knee-length puffer coats, woolen hats, scarves and gloves. Close up, the rocks were monolithic, striated in grey and red, and weathered smooth by the waves. Later, I read that those rocks were Louisian nice, and were some three billion years old. We'd crossed part of the North Sea on an overnight ferry, and landed in Shetland early on a Sunday morning. The fog enveloped the harbour at Lerwick, sheeting the boats, the wharf and the buildings by the water. No, not the fog. What we were looking at was Har. Sunburg Head is a well-known nesting site for colonies of birds, but we were not there for that, although we did see them. Gannets and skuas, razorbills and kittiwakes. We were there to visit the Jarlshof settlement, an archaeological site with evidence of human habitation from as early as 2500 BC right through to the 17th century. Layered like a family grave, Neolithic, bronze, iron, Pictish, Norse, medieval. I stood in the middle of a room that had once been enclosed by stone walls. I wondered about the woman who'd pounded grains in the quern, who'd cooked over the fire, who'd discarded bones and shells in the midden heap. I wondered what songs she'd sung to herself or to her children as they crossed over into the realms of dream. We climbed to the top of the ruins of the laird's house, and watched the waves crash onto the rocks and scatter beyond the cliff. That night, we slept in a converted Victorian schoolhouse in Bray. We would both have nightmares and wake, cold and sweating, in the strange half-light. On our last night in Shetland, we went for a stroll after dinner. The sky stays bright for a long time, that far north in summer. In the field, two black and white birds whirled over our heads, crying out. I wonder what that bird is, C mused. That's an oyster catcher, I responded. 
How do you know? He asked me. I don't know. I just do, I answered. When I looked it up afterwards, I saw that I'd been right. I had never seen those birds before that evening. I must have read about them in a book. I started to see words everywhere. Scree, Cory, Elin, Divot, Burn, Gloaming, Drich. The flowers were giving up their names. Foxglove, Gorse, Heather, Meadowsweet, Marsh Marigold, Cowslip, Milkfetch, Sea Rocket. The trees were as well. Elm, Oak, Birch, Willow, Alder, Blackthorn. I picked up a stone at the bottom of a hill in Glencoe. I climbed a path slowly, without hurry. At the peak, I placed my stone on the top of the can. The shape of the can echoed the shape of the mountain beyond. I took a loose stone from the bottom of the can and put it in my pocket. I make myself a cup of tea and think of the hill path. I climb up the hill a step at a time. I look at the earth beneath my feet, at the shimmering loch beyond, and at the wide sky above me. The wind blows in my face, and I smell the smoke from a peat fire, the ripe scent of sheep, and the clean salt of the sea. I sit in my study. The poems are starting to arrive. Are they Scottish poems? Australian poems? Singaporean poems? I do not have the answers to these questions. Perhaps the answers are in my poems. Perhaps my poems are the answer. That was Eileen Chong reading her essay, Climbing the Hill. She lives and works on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Her poetry collections include Burning Rice, Peony, Painting Red Orchids and Rainforest, all published by Pitt Street Poetry. Her next collection, A Thousand Crimson Blooms, is forthcoming from the University of Queensland Press in 2021. Her website is eileenchong.com.au and she tweets at Eileen Chong Poet. This essay was commissioned as part of a series of essays by Sydney writers on how the places they live and work shape their writing practice. We'll put a link to Eileen's essay on our podcast page, sydneyreviewbooks.com forward slash podcast. If you're interested in the writing life, you might check out our episode with Laura Elizabeth Woollett and Andrew Brooks. They talk about writing novels, winning prizes or not, and getting paid. The starting point for their conversation is an essay Laura wrote for the SRB about being shortlisted for a major literary prize, being whisked to a glamorous ceremony, not winning the prize, and flying home to work a huge day in a call centre the morning after. I'm the SRB editor, Katrina Menzies-Pike. Our producer is Alison Chan, ably assisted by Alice Desmond. Elena Godwin did the sound design and mixing, 
The SRB is produced at the Writing and Society Research Centre at Western Sydney University. This podcast was made possible by funding from the Create New South Wales Digitise Initiative. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we work, the Baramatical people of the Darug Nation and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and the struggles for justice are ongoing. We acknowledge all the traditional custodians of the lands this digital platform reaches. Thanks for listening.